thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live and Miniseries features Rabbi Dr. Levi Cooper. This episode of Pardes Live is part of the 2019 Pardes Fall Lecture Series, Complex Identities in Israeli Society. To download other digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org. Good evening, everybody. Shalom. As you heard, my name's Levy, Levy Cooper. I've been a teacher here at Pardes for around 20 years. You'll notice I don't have an accent. <laughs> I'm originally from Melbourne, Australia, and I, in addition to my work here at Pardes, I also uh, serve as a community rabbi in Sur Hadassah. And today, this evening, Together with you, I'd like to take you on a journey from the early years of the State of Israel right up until our times and focus on the question of Nusach Hatfila, prayer rites. And I'd like to use that topic as an opportunity to, do, to look at questions of identity and to have a look at some of the changing ideas here in the state of Israel regarding identity as reflected through Nusach HaTfilah. In order to get ourselves thinking about this topic, I'd like to open up by asking you, what are some of the factors that affect, that fashion our prayer spaces? I've called it prayer scapes. What affects the places we go to Daven? Yes, sir. Well, the architecture. The architecture. The physical space. The physical space. Is there a machitza? Is there not a machitza? If there's a machitza, do the women sit upstairs or on the same level? Is everyone facing the same way? The architecture, do we sit around in a circle with everyone looking to the middle? Or do we sit with pews, everyone facing to the front? So the architecture can play a very strong role in fashioning our prayer experience. What else? Okay, I'm going to call that the congregation. You also said the rabbi. The people who are present. The people who are present. If you go to a shul where everybody speaks a language that you don't speak, what are you going to be doing when you're in that shul? Probably Davni. You don't have anybody to talk to. Whereas if you go to a shul where all your mates are, there's a good chance that part of the service will be talking to your friends. So the people around you also affect the prayer scape. Those people include the rabbi. If you like the rabbi, if you dislike the rabbi, that'll affect your prayer experience. Good. So we've spoken about the physical space. We've spoken about the, uh, the other supplicants, the other people who have come to join the endeavor. And what else can we add? Part of the physical space, windows. Windows, definitely. Part of the architecture is the windows. Good. What else? Location, how close it is to home. Location, okay. So we'll call that also part of the physical space. How hard is it for you to get there? If you make the journey, you might feel, oh, I'm, so, I'm exhausted by the time I get there. On the other hand, 
You make the journey. You might feel exhilarated that you've made that effort. Good. So that's all part of the physical space. Let's move away from physical space. Some other ideas. The nu okay, nusach. Let's nusach. We've mentioned nusach, but I want to take it even on a broader scale. The text, the text, which includes the actual prayer rite, but it's not just the prayer rite. It's also what type of sidurah there is. Do they have sidurim with translation? Or are there sidurim a certain style that's different to the way I pray? Or are they the sidurah that I grew up with and there's a certain nostalgia to when I take that sidur off the shelf? Even inside the sidur, when I look inside, what does the text say? Does the text challenge my own ideas? Or does the text fit exactly where I am in life? So for, to give an example, does the text call Jerusalem desolate? We're, look at us. Desolate. There's prayers that refer to Jerusalem as desolate. How fortunate are we? Look at us. We're sitting right here in Jerusalem. You can't call this place desolate. Does, does, do the prayers reflect our reality or do they remind us of a past? Or do they? is there some dissonance? Those of us from the Southern Hemisphere who ask for rain in the middle of the summer. What's going on with that? So the, the text, which includes the order of the prayers, the text itself, the sidurim, the holder of, the, of that text, also affects the uh, prayer experience, is part of fashioning the prayer scape. What else? What else haven't we thought of? Things that are different. Yes, sir. Okay, we've mentioned congregation, but I want to bring in singing. That's a really good one. Singing, I'm going to call that by the general title of the, the soundtrack. What does it sound like when you walk into that shul? When you walk into that shul, is, do you hear a murmur of people talking? Is everybody joining in in singing? Or are they sitting back listening to the chazan who's, uh, who's, got, who's uh, presenting with the, the chazan skills? What's the soundtrack of that presentation of, or of that experience. When I say soundtrack, I'm also referring to the pronunciation. Is the pronunciation a more modern Israeli style? Or is it the pronunciation that I remember the way my grandfather used to read? Or is it something in between? So all those things fall under the category of, of soundtrack. And to, in the interest of moving us forward, I've uh, included the ideas that we've already presented, and there could be more. This wasn't given to Moses at Sinai, this list, as opposed to the rest of my presentation tonight. The, uh, the congregation, the physical space, the soundtrack and the text, all of these affect our prayer experience. Tonight, I'm acknowledging all of them, but I want to focus on one. I want to focus specifically on Nusach HaTfilah, the prayer rite. Now, when I focus on Nusach HaTfilah, I'm focusing particularly on the state of Israel because of the unique nature of the state of Israel as a place of ingathering of all different places, all different traditions. As everybody gathers here, suddenly we're meeting Nusach we're meeting things that we hadn't known before in our places of origin. You're all familiar 
with Chok HaShvut, the law of return. This is the original document. And the original document, Chok HaShvut, the law of return from 1950, the first, the first section of the law. Kol Yehudi Zakai La'alot Arza. Every Jew has the right to come to the land of Israel. And that was in 1950. By 1959, there were already one million people who had moved to the, to the state of Israel. One million. Within 11 years, we reached the number one million. This is a five lira coin that was issued specially to commemorate one million people. You'll notice that there are 11 people dancing. 11 people, one for each year, and the circle is actually open to welcome future people. That was the artist's design. It's really quite fascinating. If you can see, if you look carefully, you've got here all different types of people who are dancing. You've got there a, a person wearing a streimel. Can you see that? And there's a person wearing a hat. And what have we got over here? I think it might be, I think, look at her dress. It's a woman, right? A bit of mixed dancing going on over here. You all see that? So one million people have come to the, to the land of Israel. But as we know, people have come from so many different places. And in this picture, you can see it's captured really lovely by the artist Saul Raskin. People have come with different traditions from different places. They not only bring different traditions, they sound differently. They pronounce Hebrew differently. And the first issue that will be dealt with by the rabbinic leadership is a question of Hebrew pronunciation. How should we read Hebrew? Should we try to have one way that we're all going to read Hebrew, that we'll all read the prayers? I don't want to deal with this issue tonight. I'll have an opportunity to discuss this during our winter learning intensive here at Pardes where we'll be focusing on issues of identity, and then I'm going to talk about Hebrew pronunciation. This was the first issue, but as this issue was solved, and it was really solved organically because everybody was talking in the modern Hebrew pronunciation that we're familiar with, but as this issue was solved, the next issue in prayer spaces was the question of Nusach HaTfilah. I want to take you back to the beginning of this issue. How did this issue even begin? Why is it that if someone who comes from Casablanca prays differently, a different Nusach, to someone who comes from Poland and someone who comes from Tunis in Tunisia doesn't pray in exactly the same Nusach as someone who comes from Jerba in the south of Tunisia? How do we get to this situation? If we rewind to the Talmud, if we rewind even further to the Torah, there's no mention of nusachat of a prayer rite. There's no mention even of a sidur. The Talmud never mentions a sidur. The first sidur is the work of Rav Amram Gaon. Rav Amram Gaon, who lives in, lived in then, Babylon, but to the Babylonian today, it's in Iraq in a place called Surah. And Amram, sitting there in Surah, gets a question sent to him from Barcelona. 
And the question is, Rabbi, tell us what the order of prayers are. That's a strange question. What do you mean, tell us what order the prayers are? Just have a look at a Sidur. Why couldn't they answer? Why didn't Because there was no such thing as a Sidur. So Rav Amram says, you know what? I'm going to tell you what the order of prayers are. And he sends that order, order in Hebrew, Seder, sends that Seder. That's how we get the word Sidur. He sends that Seder to Barcelona. And that will become the prototype of the Sidur. It will be copied from place to place such that, and people will add things and take things out and change things. But that is the kernel of prayer rites. That's the reason why the truth is that at prayer rites between different communities are almost identical. You might look at me and say, what are you talking about? When I go into a Sephardi shul as an Ashkenazi, I can't concentrate. They're all speaking so loudly, I can't find my way around. And now I, as a Sephardi, when I go into an Ashkenazi shul, I'm like, why are they all dead? Why is there no praying here? <laughs> That's the soundtrack. The prayers themselves are almost identical. A word here, a word there, on the fringes, an extra chapter, and a poem here and a poem there. But by and large, it's almost identical because it all dates back. Almost all prayer rites, there's very few exceptions, almost all prayer rites, all of the Nusachet Fila, all can find their way back to Rav Amram. And what was interesting about Rav Amram's Seder is that it wasn't really printed. It was just used as the basis of the Sidur. So Sidurim are being printed, and it's only in the year 1865, that, which is very late for Jewish printing. I mean, we were there right from the beginning. Only in 1865 does someone say, you know what, I'm going to try to distill what that original letter was of Rav Amram and, and put it, publish it in a work called Seder Rav Amram. So Seder of Aram, that original letter, doesn't actually exist. It exists where? In every single Sidur that we use. But with time, in different communities, there are changes. Things are added. Things are moved. S slight, slight changes. And that's how we get different Nusachet Filah in each location. We're familiar, particularly here in Israel, with of two main schools, the Ashkenaz and the Sfaradi or Edota Mizrach. But those are really misnomers because within each community they had different customs. For the Ashkenazim in the room, Av HaRachamim, one of the prayers said on Shabbat, it's a prayer that said, does anyone know, dating back to? the Crusades, and the original custom was that each community said it, said this prayer when the Crusades had come through their village or their town or their city. So every community had their own prayer rite. There was, historically, and we'll understand why I mention this, and one attempt in the, in the middle, in the 19th century or the end of the 18th century, 
an attempt of something called Nusach Sfard. That's not Sfaradi. Nusach Sfard is the Nusach of, of the Hasidim. They called it Sfard. Why? Because they borrowed some elements of the Sfardi Nusach and they brought it in and, they, and it looked to their fellow Ashkenazim. It looked like a, the, the Nusach of the Sfardim. To the Sfardim, it didn't look like a Nusach of the Sfardim. Now, that wasn't a big issue because when you were a Chosid in Galicia, in Poland, Davning Nusach Sfard, if you're a person of the world, you knew about the Sfardim, but you weren't coming in close contact with them. Sure, there were some authorities that traveled that here in the land of Israel. The small communities knew about each other, but the major Jewish communities didn't come in close contact with each other, and therefore the issue of Nusach wasn't a major issue. When does it become a major issue? Brings us back to the ingathering of exiles when everyone suddenly starts to meet here in this very land before the establishment of the state and even more so after the establishment of the state. Suddenly, I'm looking at my neighbor and I say, one second, you dove in a different nusach. And what does that mean for me? What does it mean for you? And the first move or the first response, and I'm going to share with you four different responses. The first response, chronologically, is preservation. We're dealing with a lot. We're creating a new country. Everybody just keep your own nusach. Let's try to work on pronunciation. There isn't an attempt to bring different Nusachet filah together at all. Spokespeople for this position, the Ashkenaz, first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of the land of Israel, Rav Kook, and the first Sephardi chief rabbi of the state of Israel, Rav Benzion Meir Chai Uziel, both of them are not dealing with the question of Nusach because it is obvious that you're going to just preserve the Nusach Let's talk about pronunciation, about whether we should, we should try to make some changes in pronunciation to bring people together. It's not even, Nusach HaTfilah originally is not even in what we would call the window of discourse. <coughs> it's not relevant. And that's the first move or the first stage in the story of, of Nusach HaTfilah here in the state of Israel. But the state of Israel is founded with a very different vision. Not a vision of preserving the past. A, a different vision. What type of vision is the state of Israel integrating? A Jewish playwright caught from, from England, from London, Israel Zangville, in 1908, writes a very popular play, The Melting Pot, the great American drama. And he talks about how America is a melting pot. And if you're familiar with the play, the play, the crescendo of the play, is of course where a Jew marries a non-Jew in America. 1908. He was, he was British. Israel Zangville's play, The Melting Pot, is a story 
of America. But that idea of a melting pot was also the vision of Ben-Gurion. The vision of the state of Israel is we're going to bring everybody here and we're going to create a new identity. You can see everybody coming in and see our little guy over here with his little cover temple coming out, the great melting pot of the state of Israel. And what's that called in Hebrew? Melting pot? Cholent. It's called Kur Hahituch, a direct translation of the term melting pot. Kur Hahituch. That's the vision here in the state of Israel. And as that's the vision in the state of Israel in many different areas, so it also comes into play in the question of Nusachat Fila, which effectively means some form of erosion, perhaps even erasing the differences. And there are a number of different ways that this is carried forward. But it's a vision. It's a vision, a biblical vision. A vision that everybody will call B'Shem Hashem Le'ovdo Shem Echad with one accord. We will all pray together, call out God's name as one. Now where does this happen? Well, one of the first places it happens is in various educational institutions, religious schools, youth movements. So Bnei Akiva gets together, as I'm sure many of you know, gets together Shabbos afternoon. You get together Shabbos afternoon. What are you going to do? Mincha. But it's a, this isn't something that belongs to the Ashkenazim or the Sephardim, to the Moroccans or the Tunisians or the Algerians or the... Po this is, we want to bring everybody together. And so therefore, you can't have all these kids coming together and not just choose one Nusach. And the default that's chosen as part of a vision is, the, is Nusach Sfard. They're not Hasidim. But Nusach Sfard seems like a good idea. Why? Because it sounds like it belongs also to the Sfardim. It's the majority of the Ashkenazim. It, there is some elements from the Sfardim Nusach that are borrowed. And so therefore, almost imperceptibly, this is the Nusach that is used in educational institutions in the early years of the state. In those early years, Rav Shlomo Goren, from the beginning of the state, is the chief rabbi of the army of Tzahal. He's the one who sets up the Chel Harabanut HaTzvait, the chaplaincy of Tzahal. And Rav Goren, in that role, publishes Sidurim, Sidurim for soldiers. And you have a look at this Sidur. It's published in 1952 with Rav Goren's short introduction. What Nusach do you think this is going to be in? It's actually in Ashkenaz. It's in Ashkenaz. In 1963, Rav Goren 
is appointed as an aluf. Aluf would be translated as perhaps a major general. It is a one rank below the Ramatkal, chief of staff. And as, as a rabbi of the Tzahal, 1963. This is an opportunity for him. He has unprecedented clout. He's present in high-level discussions. And this appointment in 1963, a year later, in 1964, he issues a new Sidur. A new Sidur with Halachot. And look at this Sidur. I want to highlight a few things that he writes in the introduction to this Sidur. Dinei Nusach HaTfilah. The laws of prayer rites. He says, regarding pronunciation, in the army, everybody has to pronounce the words, pronounce the words like modern Hebrew pronunciation. I don't want to hear any of this Ashkenazi stuff. Everybody's pronouncing the prayers the same way. What about tunes? The official tune in every synagogue that belongs to the army in every shul of Tzahal will be the official army tune. I'm not sure what that was. <laughs> and what about Nusach? Says Rav Goren. The official Nusach will be Nusach Sfard. That will be the official Nusach. Why? Because it's based on the Ari, which is, very, which is the, the Ari, the great Kabbalist, and that will be the official Nusach. Before I show you what the front of this Siddur looks like, I just want to point out there's a funny law here. Um, if there's any Gabaim in the, in the crowd, you know how difficult it is sometimes to ask people to go to be, a, to be Chazan. Rav Goran said, if an officer tells you to be Chazan, you have to listen. <laughs> Army law. Rav Goren says the official army Sidur will be Nusach Sfard. But he does something very interesting. He doesn't call it Nusach Sfard. Have a look at the front cover. He call, gives it a new name. He calls it Nusach Achid. The uniform Nusach. Now this is really the same as Nusach Sfard, the Hasidic Nusach, which is also known as Nusach Ha'ari, which is also known by Lubavitchers as Nusach Ha'arizal, all he did was rename it and call it Nusach Achid, the uniform Nusach. Uniform, that makes sense. You're in the army, everybody's wearing the same uniform, everybody eats the same food, everybody, um, there's, everybody follows the same set of orders, and therefore you pray in the same unified prayer rite. When I... Uh, I joined the army, I was given just such a Sidur, which still to this day says on the front cover, Nusach Achid. We used to joke, the only thing uniform about this Nusach is that everybody agrees that it's not mine. <laughs> I just said I was in the army, sir. Rav Goren puts this Sidur into use into the army. This is the official Sidur that is given to soldiers, the official Sidur that's put into every synagogue, every shul 
on every army base and becomes the official army Nusach, Nusach Achid, the uniform Nusach. A year later, in 1964, Rav Goren tries to get elected to the chief rabbinate as the chief rabbi of the state of Israel. And he loses the vote by one vote. Rav Unterman is elected as the chief rabbi. He continues in the army. And then in 1972, the next time there's an election for the chief, for the chief rabbi, Rav Goren wins and becomes the chief rabbi of the state of Israel. Chief Ashkenazi rabbi. At the same time, in 1972, the election for the chief Sephardi rabbi, who wins? Ravovadia Yosef. Ravovadia Yosef. I love this image because Ravovadia Yosef sitting next to Rav Goren, and this picture really captures the dialogue that these two great men had. <laughs> Rav Go As Ravovadia in the 1970s, before Ravovadia will become famous for founding a political party, this is before he, he found in the 1980s when he establishes Shas, he has asked a series of halachic questions. We have four responsa from Ravovadia Yosef. Four different responsa where he deals with the question of Nusachat. Let's just understand all of them are dated to around the 1970s, even if I can't pinpoint the exact year. But that's important because we know what's happening here in the country in the 1970s. The 1970s is exactly the time that the old elites are losing power. 1977, of course, is the first time that there'll be a Likud government elected here in Israel. And in, with that background, Rav Ovadja is asked, as I said at that time, four questions, four different scenarios. The first question comes from Tveria. And in Tveria, Rav Ovadja Yosef is asked a question about a new synagogue that has just been opened up, and all everybody who davens there is from North Africa. And most of the people there want to pray in the traditional Sephardi Nusach. But there's a group of young people that would like to pray Benusach Achid Hanahug Betzahal, the uniform Nusach of Rav Goren, that's similar to Nusach Ashkenaz. But the majority of the community doesn't want to do that. Tell us, Rabbi, what should we do? Now, from a legal perspective, this is a very easy question to answer. Go by the majority, exactly. This is a, right, the, the majority. Rav Goren doesn't just leave it there. Rav Vaji Yosef doesn't leave it there, as we'll see in a moment. The second question comes to Rav Vaji Yosef from Afula, from a school, a religious school in Afula. And in Afula, 
the questioner points out that 90% of the students come from Sephardi backgrounds. And yet, the Nusach of the school in this religious school is Nusach Ha'achid, again, referring to Rav Goren's Nusach, is Nusach Ha'achid, which is the Nusach in the Yeshivot of Bnei Akiva, and it's the Nusach of the army, and the teachers are arguing that that's the Nusach we should do because we're preparing, we should use because that's the, we're preparing our students for the Yeshivot of Bnei Akiva and for going to the army. Again, the majority in this case, majority is Sephardi. So again, Rabbi Yosef in this response also could have easily said, sorry fellas, the majority decides. But Ravavadi didn't want to leave it just by, uh, as a question of majority. In fact, the other two questions that come to Ravavadya are not necessarily questions of where the majority would help him. Question four refers to a Sephardi gentleman who is an Ovel, he's in the year of mourning, and going to pray. In, sometimes he goes to pray in the shul near his house. And as a person who's in the year of mourning, he wants to be chazan. And yet, the nusach of the place where he's davening is Ashkenaz. He asks Ravavad Yosef, when I go to that shul, am I allowed to daven nusach Ashkenaz? <coughs> now, based on the majority principle, we would say to him, yeah, but Ravavad doesn't want to say that. Fourth question Refer, is a question sent to Rav Ovad Yosef, and this question was just published only a few months ago. A question asked by a number of yeshiva students, Sephardi yeshiva students who are learning in an Ashkenazi yeshiva. And they don't have enough, they can't get organized for the high holy days to have their own Sephardi minyan. Rav Ovadia, can we daven together with the Ashkenazim? Again, if it was based on the majority, daven with the Ashkenazim, they're the majority, daven nusach Ashkenaz. But we said that that's not where Avavadja wants to go. And therefore, in his response, he starts off by saying in the first two cases, indeed, the majority rules. But it's not just about the majority. In fact, says Ravavadja, the according to the Ari, the great Kabbalist, the Sephardi nusach is better. And therefore, and therefore, even if you're a minority, your nusach trumps the majority's nusach because it's the better nusach, it is the purer nusach, the nusach of the Sephardim. It's fascinating to see how what Rav Goren did in the army, Rav Ovadia was doing exactly the opposite from the seat of the chief rabbinate. Did everybody see that? Ravovadia adds the dream. Ideally, I would like a unified prayer rite. What should that unified prayer rite be? Sephardi, of course. Why Sephardi? Says Ravovadia Yosef. The, the unified prayer rite should be the best and should be the unified prayer rite of we're in the land of Israel. We should therefore follow the minig of the land of Israel, which is the minig of Rav Yosef Karo, which is the minig of the Rambam, which is the Sephardi Nusach. And therefore, 
says Rav Ovadi Yosef, everybody should ideally daven according to the Sephardi prayer rite, Sephardi Nusach. Rav Ovadia in the 1980s realizes that to make that change, he needs to actually publish Sidurim. So he moves, he understands that he needs that container, that, that holder, that placeholder for this text, and he goes and publishes Sidurim and spreads them throughout Sephardi shuls. They don't actually make the crossover to Ashkenazi shuls, but his vision is surprisingly similar to Rav Goren's vision of one unified prayer rite, not Sephardi, or not Sephard, but Sephardi. Everybody with me? Both of those expressions are moves towards erosion of the distinctions in two different directions. This brings me to a third attempt at erosion. Rav Nachum Eliezer Rabinovitz, Rabinovich is a Rosh Yeshiva in Ma'alei Adumim of the Yeshivat Hezder of Ma'alei Adumim after an illustrious career, uh, principal of Jews College, um, professor of mathematics. And Rav Rabinovich is asked a very emotional question. In a responsum that doesn't have a date, it was only published some 11 years ago, Rav Rabinovich is asked by a former student with so much pathos. I remember the glory days, says the student. I remember the glory days in yeshiva when everybody could pray their own nusach. And it didn't matter where you came from, you got up to be the chazan and you prayed your own nusach and everybody just joined you. And now I'm no longer in yeshiva. Tell me, Rabbi, I would like to tell my local community that we should follow the way we did it in yeshiva that made space for everybody and that we shouldn't have a nusach in the Beit Knesset. Let the chazan, whoever's the chazan, he will decide what that nusach will be. Tell me, Rabbi, give me words of encouragement so that I can go back to my rabbi, my local rabbi, and try to change the accepted practice in my local shul. So from the question, you can already see where he's going with it. And Rav, and Rav Rabinovich responds in kind and says, indeed, we're in a new place, new reality. It's now time to get rid of those differences. Don't do it in a violent way. But try encouraging people to, uh, to create a new nusach that will be whoever goes up, he will choose the nusach. The fact is that this is very hard to justify on a halachic basis. Having said that, this is the practice that has been accepted in many communities, certainly new communities where the leadership are people who studied perhaps in yeshivot and they, wanna, they don't want to deal with choosing one nusach and therefore they'll say whatever the chazan goes up, that'll be, that'll, be the, that'll be the nusach. Of course, there are cases where this can cause 
strife. <laughs> Why? Because we've suddenly turned the question of Nusach, which Nusach should we do? We've brought that question or that tension right into the Beit Knesset. I can tell you on a personal level, my experience in Surah Dasa, the, the oldest shul in Surah Dasa, when I moved to Surah Dasa, was a shul that, that, was an, that is officially referred to as the shul of in Nusach Ashkenaz and Nusach Eidotah Mizrach. And it's according to the Chazan. According to the Chazan, until the Chazan takes a breath. And then everybody jumps to try to lead the service towards their Nusach. So this has the potential, doesn't always happen this way, but it has the potential of bringing that tension right into the Beit Knesset. I want to share with you, and this is the fourth version of that erosion of uh, Nusach HaTfilah. This is something brand new. I'm sharing this with you by permission of the local rabbi. Fresh news from a small yeshuv in the south of Hebron Hills, Asael. They recently, only a month ago, instituted that they were dealing with this very question. And the committee got together and had a discussion. How are we going to deal with it? We want to, on one hand, give everybody space. On the other hand, we don't want there to be fighting as to, why are you letting him go? You had Sfaradi last week. Let us have Ashkenazi this week. What, he did Ashkenazi in the morning. Let us do a Sfaradi in the afternoon. We want to neutralize that. And they came up with this table <laughs> this month. You're laughing, but this is serious. They've came up with this table a monthly table that is official policy of the shul. They are going to institute it for, I think it was two years, as a trial, and then they're going to reassess whether it works. It was based on the percentage of Ashkenazim and the percentage of Sfaradim and some of the other differences. And this is what the committee established. So there's no question anymore, uh, there's no question as to one second, what's it going to be tonight? Because you know, are we in week two? Oh, week two, okay, Kabbalat Shabbat will be and will be Sephardi. I know already in, in advance. And this is the fourth attempt of, er of erosion of the notion of Nusach. So four attempts, and then I'll explain to you why I call them erosion of Nusach and what the price of this, these types of solutions, what the price is. So the first one was Rav Goren, who tried to have a, a uniform Nusach in the army. The second was Rav Ovadi Yosef, who under the guise of saying, let us return the crown of glory as in the days of old, going back to the Nusach of the, the Sfaradi Nusach. Rav Rabinovich, who said, let the Chazan, whoever the Chazan is, let that Chazan decide and this is brand new, I don't even have a name for it yet, divide and conquer, we already know what it's going to be set in advance, a fourth version. I, wanted to, I want us to think for a few moments, what are the, what's the price of this, these types of solutions? The first cost of these solutions is an image that parents may be familiar with. 
all of these solutions undermine the past. I no longer, where do I come from? I don't have those roots anymore. I'm only forward-looking. Doesn't make a difference what my father, grandfather, grandparents, what they davened. It's all about now, what we're creating now. So there's a disconnect from the past. And that's the first cost of these prices, of these solutions. I think that in Rav Rabinovich's tshuva, you can hear it clearly. The questioner turns to Rav Rabinovich and says, I remember the glory days, where? In yeshiva. I want to replicate the yeshiva in my community. I don't want to replicate what I grew up with, the wealth of the cultural diversity or the wealth that I had as a child when I would go with my parents to shul. I want to replicate the new world of the yeshiva taking place of the, over the, of the family traditions. So that's on a family level. I think that that goes a little bit further. It's not only now a question of Ashkenazi or Sephardi. We've got rid of those terms really, Ashkenazi or Sephardi. And instead, what do we have now? Ashkafard, Sephardinaz. Right? There is no longer a concept of Nusach. Is that a problem? Come back to that question at the end of the at the end of our discussion tonight. But for now, let me just say that it is disconnecting the roots of our disconnecting our roots or disconnecting ourselves from where we come from. Only forward looking. So on one hand, yes, we have that we've got something new, whether it's Ashkana, Ashkafar or Svardanaz, we've got something new. On the other hand, what happens to our past? And that's why it's a question of identity. Is our identity only something forward-looking or is our identity also connected to who we were, where we come from? I want to move on to the third, um, the third solution or the third approach. You'll remember our melting pot. And let's uh, have a look at our young man again. You'll notice with his cover temple, can you see that he's smiling? Right? <laughs> The melting pot was beautiful. It was a great idea. The early state years, this was the place that we were going to create a new identity that got rid of all the trappings of exile. But that paradigm is no longer the prevalent paradigm. We no longer want a melting pot. We now want cultural diversity. We like the notion of a... Of a People that is multicultural. And that's the new paradigm here in Israel. With that in mind, that leads me to the third stage in the development of Nusach. It's a return. A return to the Nusach of old. But let's be clear. It's a return to an imagined past. Why is it an imagined past? Why... Because I didn't grow up in Jerba, and yet I want to sing the nigunim that I think or that I have been preserved in some way from Jerba. I didn't grow up in Galicia, but I want to pronounce the prayers and read the prayers as if, but I've been, but I've been, but I've been disconnected. 
And so therefore, it's only a return to an imagined past. It can't be a return to the real past because even when I read in the so-called Sephardi pronunciation, I'm reading really in the Israeli version of that Sephardi pronunciation because nowadays we don't teach kids even the, the het and the ayin that was the original Sephardi pronunciation. So it's a return to the imagined past. And the champion of this approach is Rav Eliyahu Bakshi Doron, very important rabbi who served as chief Sephardi rabbi. I say he's an important rabbi. You can see he has very important meetings. <laughs> <laughs> and Rav Bakshi Doron, who's a personal hero of mine, Rav Bakshi Doron, he was the Sephardi chief rabbi. And in his responsa, Binyan Av, he has a fascinating responsum. It's a question sent to him by an official in local government. And the official in local government says to him, we have limited resources and everybody's asking me to provide them with their own shul. He doesn't mention names. We don't know how, is it Ashkenazim, Sephardim, or is it North Africa and uh, Eastern communities, or is it within North Africa, Morocco, uh, um, Tunisia, Algeria? Everybody's asking for their own prayer spaces. What's better, Rabbi? Should I, as local government, try to create big prayer spaces that will fit everybody together? Or should I divide up and try to provide for as many different options as possible? Good question. Just for a moment, before we hear what Rav Bakshi Doron has to say, what do you think Rav Ovadia would say? What would Rav Ovadia say? That's right. We'll have one shul, one Sephardi shul. What would Rav Goren say? One shul, Nusach, Achid. He wouldn't call it Sephard. Achid. It's unified. Right? He would, that's what uniform Nusach. That's what Rav Goren would say. And that, in many ways, certainly when I opened the Chufa, I thought that was going to be the direction. I thought Rav Bakshi Doron might take something like that, water it down in some way. But Rav Bakshi Doron was, is his own man. And in his responsa, he doesn't toe the line. And in this responsum, he comes up with a new understanding entirely. Says Rav Bakshi Doron, the source of the notion that you must follow custom comes from the verse, Al titosh toratimecha. Do not forsake the Torah, the traditions of your mother. And that's the source of following custom. Says Rav Bakshi Doron, don't forget, there's the first part of the Pasuk as well. Shma b'ni musar avicha. Listen to the teachings of your father. Rav Bakshi Doron says, this verse encapsulates the Jewish experience. Musara Vicha refers to the laws. 
The father, in traditional Jewish thought, is responsible for teaching the child what the law is. What's the second part? Not the law. The spirit. The neshama. Says Rav Bakshi Doron. There's the law, and then there's the spirit of the law. The soul of the law. The Torah Timecha is the soul of the Jewish people. Musar Avicha is the law. Says Rav Bakshi Doron. Which one do you think is more important? Which one do you think? Which one? <coughs> I would have thought the law. The law is more important. All the other stuff, whether you wear a white shirt on Shabbat or you have a white tablecloth or whether you have kneidlach, kreplach or whatever it is, whether you put your egg, an egg in the cholent or you call it chamin or whatever it is, that's all the nice extra frills. That's what I would have thought. Comes along Rav Bakshi Doron, drops a bombshell. He says, a Jew who doesn't keep Jewish law, Yisrael, afal pi shechata, Yisrael hu, still a Jew. If you don't keep Jewish law, you're still Jewish. But if you don't keep Jewish traditions, where are you? He t turns it on its head. Says Rav Bakshi Doron, you want to know what's more the essence of, Jew of the Jewish people? Torati Mecha is more important than even the, the laws. If, if I wouldn't have seen it in his own hand, I would have said that. If I'd said it, you would have thrown me out. Not of Pradesh, but the rabbinate, maybe. <laughs> Says Rav Bakshi Doron, Minhag, the custom, that's what fashions our identity. That is the soul of the people. That's the flavor of Jewish practice. Think about our Shabbos experience. Think about it. I don't know how many of you were tempted on Shabbat to plow, reap, and we know. That's, those are the laws. And yet, that's not, if I had to summarize for someone, if I had to explain what Shabbat was, what would you say? It's a, well, it's a special family time. That's not a law. Yeah, yeah, we, 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 wear, we wear special clothes. We have, the, we have clothes that we put aside. We only wear them on Shabbat. That's not a law. You can wear your regular clothes. Yeah, I understand, but we know what? We have a shower, especially before in the afternoon, so that we're fresh. A shower? If you don't have a shower, it's not Shabbos. <laughs> Says Rav Bakshi Doron, our Shabbos experience, I'm translating his words, our Shabbos experience is more about all those minhagim, all those practices that are actually not law. That's what creates Shabbos. That's what the Shabbos experience really is. If I translate that to prayer, says Rav Bakshi Doron, what's the most important aspect of prayer? It's actually the Nusach. Yeah, sure, you can pray and be yotze and discharge your obligation. Sure. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is an experience of connecting. For that... You need all those things that create the prayerscape that we spoke about earlier. 
that have, most of them have no halachic standing. That, in fact, is Torati Mecha. That is more important, says Rav, says Rav Bakshi Doron, than even the actual laws. And then Rav Bakshi Doron takes it a step further. And he says, by having a gamut of options, I also provide different choices for religious experience. Now this is a major step, because suddenly he's moved a little bit out of traditional ideas of Nusach. Traditionally, Nusach, what was my Nusach? My father's Nusach. And what was my father's Nusach? His father's Nusach and his father, and all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu, of course. Right? That was traditionally the way we thought about Nusach. Not that I had a choice. Comes along Rav Bakshi Doron and says, no, we need to all these minhagim. You know why we need all these minhagim? Because I might connect more to that style. And you might connect to that style. And this gives us a range of possibilities to choose how to, how to find the best prayer experience that's suitable to my soul. This is a very surprising position, really tapping into some modern ideas of, of choice. He stops short at total choice and says the range is limited. You can't create your own prayer rite. Okay? That's, we still need to pray as a community. And therefore, only the rites that have been tested by the sands of time. Only those prayer rites are options. I'm adding, in theory, there could be another prayer rite that with time would become acceptable. That's possible. But at least in the interim, the, the choices are, I can choose to go to the, uh, the, uh, the, the Minag of Jerba, I can choose to go to a Hasidic shul. I can choose to go to a Breslov shul. I can choose to go to a Yekka shul. I can choose whichever one I want. I can't go to Nusach Levi Cooper. That's where, that's, his lim that's where he limits it. But it still gives me a number of different choices. And he concludes with a powerful statement. And he says, unity stems from the freedom to choose. Such a modern approach. He recognizes that by eroding a people's identity, we're not going to actually succeed in forcing them to daven together. We will, uh, people will be unified if each person, and now I'm adding my own, to my own extra line here. If a person is confident enough in their own identity, then they don't feel threatened by the other. They can make space for the other. I think that Rav, Rav Bakshi Doron understood that. And therefore, his suggestion is to preserve, and he writes to that official and he says, open as many as you can, as many options. That will be culturally wealthy. That will be a rich society if we can choose between the full gamut of options. Beautiful responsum. Certainly one that speaks, it's, it's fascinating. If you would have told me, given me this response, I would have said, you know, this is probably a rabbi who grew up in, in America, right? This is 
Rabbakshi Doron, he grew up here. And yet he's in touch with, uh, with modern ideas. I, want to, I do want to allow time for questions, but I want to have one more stop in the development of the questions of Nusach, even though I'd love to really end with Rav Bakshi Doron. I'm such a fan. But I do want to just speak for a moment about how some gender issues have entered the question of Nusach HaTfilah. Now, there are many issues of gender that affect Nusach HaTfilah, whether it's the text or the, the architecture, the congregation, all those issues, I'm recognizing them and I'm putting them aside. And I'm focusing on one specific aspect, the aspect of what happens when a couple come, gets together, decides to get married, he davens nusach X, she davens nusach Y. What happens? Now, traditionally, the traditional approach was she went to him. Why? What was the logic behind that? Nusach Hatfilah was originally something got to do with location. In theory, the idea was that a woman who gets married goes to the domicile of the husband. Now, I use a legal term because this is not particular to Judaism. This is a general legal principle until very recently that the woman went to the domicile of the man. And Nusrat also adopted that idea. So when the woman goes to the domicile of the man, it's as if she's left her place. She's left Casablanca. She's moved to Gabas in Tunisia. Right? And therefore she takes on the local Gabas uh, Nusrat. And that was the prevalent approach. Of course, that's not the way we live our lives or experience life today. Taking us back to Rav Nachum Rabinovich, and he is asked this very question. He's asked, what should we, a young couple, do? Different minhagim, different prayers, prayer rites, do we have to have one set of minhagim? And Rav Rabinovich has a fascinating approach. He says, he says, it depends. Depends what type of minhagim now. If they're minhagim that affect the couplehood, then it needs to be one minhagim. But if it doesn't affect the couplehood, who says anybody has to change? So if it's a minhag, that affects the relationship. For instance, I'll give an example. How many hours you wait between milk, meat and milk. Right? She, he's, uh, he's, she's Dutch. One hour. He, he's, uh, right, he's, uh, he's Sephardi. Six hours. It could be the opposite, right? doesn't make a difference. Right? You can't have it that one of the couple is uh, at the end of the meal, he's having a cup of coffee with milk, and the other one says, oh, six hours, puts the stopwatch on, and then I'll have my cup of coffee. You want, them, you want the couple to be eating together. So when it's an, a an aspect like that, we do want everybody to have one minhag. But in every other case, in every other case, we, there's no reason that one person has to give up 
on their minhag. Okay, and what about a case where they have to give up one of them, they have to have come together for one minhag? Whose minhag does that have to be? Traditionally, we said it was the man. Says Rav Rabinovich, that's when we were in the communities in exile. There's no min local minhag here. And says Rav Rabinovich, therefore, they can decide whichever minhag they want. Fascinating approach to see how our new ideas of gender have entered into the halachic discourse. I want to stop for a minute for brief questions and or comments before I try to bring things together and, uh, and wrap it up for, uh, for this evening. How, who's got a question? Let's just see so I know how to budget the time. One, two, three, four. Four questions. Yes, sir. Your name. He doesn't, first of all, he doesn't say. And that responds to him, he doesn't say. I think that he doesn't, that he prefers, has other values that are paramount and that take precedence over just following what your parents did. But he's not asked that specific question. It's a good question. Who was two? Your name again, sir. I, I, I did it purposefully, right? To, to, I, if you notice, I tried to use lots of different types of examples because, it, because once it's an imagined past, so then the distinctions, are, 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 the resolution of those distinctions is surprising. Um, you, you think, from, where I, from Australia, I thought there's Tunisia. Little did I know that there's Tunis in the north, and then there's South Tunisia, and within South Tunisia there's Jerba, and the distinctions between them are very different in style, in learning, in nusach, in lots of, in lots of, lots of aspects. So I purposefully used different, uh, different examples. Uh, Ashkenazi and Sephardi is just the way we experience it today. But once I'm talking about a return to an imagined past, the resolution gets, uh, is, is different. Who was three? Yes, sir, your name? Joel. Joel. Only a little problem? Beautiful, beautiful. In gathering of exiles, in your family, in your house, everybody. Um, I don't see that as a. I don't see that as an as a problem because once Rav Bakshi Doron spoke about the personal choice that you can go to whichever of these imagined pasts you want, so that you can choose Joel. If if what speaks to you is Taimani. Uh, davening, then you can daven there, says Rav Bakshi Doron. If what speaks to you is the Galiziana davening, then go and daven over there. And you know what? Maybe one week that speaks to you and another week something else speaks to you. Right? Like there's lots of considerations. We're complex beings. That's where Rav Bakshi Doron, and that's why that's such a, uh, it's, I, I can't get over this response. It's such a bombshell because it opens up possibilities that growing up, we never knew were, were, were options. We never knew that. We, never, we, we grew up, you grew up, Joel, with Nusach walls at the Shabbos table. Till now, I won't give my kids a, a, a cookie. They have to say biscuit. <laughs> okay? So, Rav Bakshi Doron opens up new possibilities. 
Okay, so Rav Bakshi Doron himself doesn't deal with uh, that question. He doesn't talk about it in his responsum. Uh, practically, I can tell you what's going on. What's going on practically is particularly because of the influence of Rav Ovadia in the army bases. What happens if it's an army base that is a re an army base where there are people who daven there every day? Then it's the majority who decide the shul. The local shul has a nusach, normally based on the majority of people who turn up to davening. Um, army bases that are uh, permanent army bases that I've been to, the nusach is Sfardi. Um, that's just the nature of the people who are coming to the coming to davening. When you're in miluim, in reserve duty, and you're on, you've got a small base. If you can get a minion together which isn't so easy because if you're not on duty, so you go home and help your family. <laughs> and, but when there's a minion, it's very fluid because it's not something permanent. And the truth is that Nusach Achid has, there is a Sidurim, this is a, this is a, there's a vestige of what once was, but this isn't really, uh, this isn't really what's going on. And, I've never, I was never told by a, an officer, go and be chazan. So the idea that, those ideas I don't think are, uh, are so current anymore. Okay. I want to try to tie things together with, our fo in, with the final uh, 15 minutes. And I want to leave you with two takeaways. First takeaway is the concept I'm calling it Zionist Halakha. We've seen today on our journey a number of different rabbinic figures, chief rabbis, Rashi Yeshiva, who put forward ideas as of Nusach Which of the, who of the, out of these authorities, who has given voice to a Zionist vision for Halakha? If you think about it, Rav Cook, Rav Goren, anyone else? Any other answers? Out of the people we've seen today, I would argue every single one of them. Every single one of them is offering a narrative of what the what 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 halacha could look like here. Are we a society here in Israel that brings everybody together in one path? And is that path a path that is a compromise, Rav Goren? Is that path a throwback to an imagined past, Rav Ovadi Yosef, Sfaradi Nusach? Is that path every, a multicultural path? Is that path recognizing modern trends like uh, as Rav Rabinovich suggested? So this notion of Zionist halakha suddenly becomes a very slippery notion. Halakha can give voice to different Zionist dreams. And therefore to define one and say, this rabbi was a Zionist poisik, was a Zionist halachic decisor, doesn't tell the full story. Because what we really need to ask is, what is the dream, what is the vision that this particular decisor is, uh, is, is seeing, is thinking about, is imagining. 
And that's the first takeaway that I'd like to leave you with. The second is something that really, really should bother us. What have we been talking about over the last hour? We've been talking about an innocuous issue of Nusachat Fila. I opened up and I said, like, the differences are so small. I mean, what happened to the principle of Rahmana Libabai, the merciful one, desires the heart? Why is it that we're spending, not just us, this evening, but you've seen how much thought and consideration and how many responses are written on this issue of Nusachat Fila? It's an innocuous issue. How should we understand the fact that, that tefillah is like a lightning rod? And notice I've chosen a picture that has a number of lightning rods. It's not the only one, but it's a lightning rod for questions of identity. Tonight we've dealt with one of them. But we know in our realities, in our, in our communities, how tefillah becomes such a contested area. Why is it? And I'd like to offer a number of different approaches how we can understand why, it's, why tefillah is one of those lightning rods. First, I want to suggest, as Freud has uh, suggested, the narcissism of small differences. And once I put that on the board, at least for myself, I start thinking, am I being narcissistic by focusing on what divides us? Shouldn't we be focusing on what actually brings us together and how similar we really are, rather than saying, that this is my mind. They're so similar. So my first point is that this issue that's a lightning rod might remind us to actually try to find the common ground. The second, my second point is maybe my premise is not right. Maybe prayer is not so innocuous as one might think at the beginning. We spend so much, not just effort, but time and investment in prayer spaces Maybe that's because prayer actually means something to us as a people. Maybe it's because it is an important part of our lives. Maybe my energy is going in the wrong direction because I really want to say, not fight over Nusach. What I really want to say is this is important to me. Maybe that's what the real issue is when I'm trying to fight over a Nusach or ask these questions. And this brings me to my third point, that identity issues are truly complex. To think that we can just solve Israel by an, an, an idea of a melting pot is oversimplified. And the sooner we realize that identities are complex and the issues associated with identity are complex, I think the easier we will have a time in approaching those issues. So this question or this quest, for me this was a quest to try to understand questions of Nusach, 
remind me that how difficult questions of individual, communal identity. And while I'm looking for that individual or communal identity, it brings me to my fourth point, the tension, a constant tension between preserving the past and innovating in the future. What's the right balance between those two values? If I only want to innovate, then I have nothing in the past. If I only want to hold on to the past, then I have no future. How do I find a balance? How do I take my chicken soup and put just the right amount of salt? Innovations like salt. If you put too much, you can't. It's not chicken soup. If you don't have any of it, there's no taste. So how do I find that balance? And I think that this issue of Nusachat Fila is one expression of the quest for balance between preservation and innovation. And this brings me to my final point, and with this I'll end for this evening. We open, I began this evening by talking about how Israel was an ingathering of people, an ingathering of ideas, of traditions, and of nusach, of nusachet filah. And suddenly we were faced with issues that we were never faced with before. And this may also remind us that, for, that somehow deep down inside of us we understand that when we're talking about the state of Israel, we're not just talking about what am I going to dub it in my shul. We're talking about the future of our people. And this country, our homeland, becomes, regrettably, a battleground for the future. It's, it's not something that we are willing to give up because we care. That's a good thing. But let's also remember, as we think about shaping the future of our homeland, of our people, that we can't just shape based on fighting. We need to find that common ground as we look to the future. So whatever Nusach you daven, whatever Nusach you davened, and whatever Nusach you will daven, I hope that we can continue building this country together. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. For more digital content from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, please visit elmod.pardes.org.